Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brains, Black Holes, and Beyond, a collaboration podcast between the Princeton Insights newsletter and the Daily Princetonian. From the Prince, my name is Sena Eldabash. And Keta Shavdia. Today's guest on the show is Alec Downey, a final year grad student and PhD candidate in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. Alec got his bachelor's in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University, his master's of philosophy at the University of Cambridge, and his master's of science at Princeton University. He now works at the Graham Lab and researches mice to better understand human immunology. Alec, welcome to the show. As a first question, we would like you to introduce yourself. What got you interested in ecology and evolutionary biology, and why did you choose to start working at Graham Lab and pursue their research about mouse human immunology? Sure. So um, I've sort of always been interested in ecology and evolution, and sort of I wasn't like a wild nature child as a kid, but I did always like animals. Um, so that was always what I wanted to do in undergrad. Um, when I when I sort of started, I knew that was what I wanted to major in, but you still don't really have a concept of like what research is and what topics are actually particularly exciting to you. So I kind of bounced around and did a bunch of different things, um, uh, dabbled in sort of plant ecology and uh, human genetics. Um, but I sort of became interested in uh, infectious disease through taking a uh, seminar series in evolutionary medicine. So sort of understanding how evolution gives us better insight into the health challenges that people face. Um, and so because of that, I sort of realized that immunology or, or disease in general was a topic of a lot of interest to me. Um, and in my master's, as well as the year I spent working at the National Institutes of Health, I worked on um, sort of the, not, not the host side of sort of infectious disease, but the parasite side. So trying to understand how parasites infect and sort of what are the dynamics of infection from parasites. But um, I sort of had this inkling that that wasn't quite satisfactory to me. And I'd heard about Andrea as like a really wonderful researcher. I'd actually seen her give a seminar at Yale in my senior year um, and knew that she was someone who is like a really great person to work with. And so, and I thought, well, she'll sort of, she's done a lot of interesting work on this host parasite interface and sort of thinking about the ecology and how the ecology affects what sort of the, the outcome of that interaction. And so that was what got me excited to work with Andrea um, and sort of to, to come to Princeton EB in general, which is a wonderful place to be a graduate student and which has a nice cluster of people who really think in exciting and sort of groundbreaking ways about. And so that was sort of what, what got me here for action. And I was still sort of thinking, oh, I want to do parasites when I started. Um, but pretty quickly, Andrea sort of properly assessed that what I'm actually interested in really is the host. And I'm sort of interested in the host's biology. Like what is the host doing? How was the host's strategy, right? How does it handle the fact that it is exposed to a bunch of parasites and how does that interface with other aspects of the host biology? Um, and so working with Andrea has really been a wonderful fit for that because we, we use sort of methods from immunology. We, we work on ideas from immunology, but we also work on ideas from what's sometimes called evolutionary ecology, which is like a very vague term, but basically just sort of means like basic aspects of organismal sort of biology in terms of what are their, what are their lifespan patterns? What are their sort of reproductive patterns? Like sort of what are the, the sort of basic outlines of the organismal biology and the organismal strategy? And so that's been a really profitable sort of space for me to, 
to work in. Um, and the mice are a particularly exciting part of that, although not the only part of that for, for my dissertation. Gotcha. And talking about your dissertation, as a final year grad student, you're likely preparing to present your dissertation. Um, could you give us an overview about what your dissertation is about and what you've been able to learn about immunology? Yeah. So um, my dissertation has been a couple different aspects of immunology and has used a couple different techniques. So the basic sort of overview concept that I sort of work with and that I used when I was out on the trail looking for postdocs was sort of the question of why is there so much variation that we observe in the immune system, right? It's not the case that there is a single optimal immune phenotype, but rather there's a variety of optimal immune strategies. And when you sort of assess the immune systems of a bunch of humans, they're all going to look very different from each other. Um, and this isn't necessarily like a bad thing per se, it's just a thing. And so why do we observe that thing? So that was sort of kind of the organizing principle, and you can sort of attack this from a couple of different ways. Um, so one of the ways that I started actually was with a little mathematical model. So one thing that a lot of people in Princeton EB do is, is theoretical biology and theoretical ecology. Um, and so trying to understand sort of based on an organism's, you know, projected lifespan and the epidemiological risks that it faces, how is its optimal immune strategy going to vary? And so that's like a very abstract way of doing things. Um, but then we also, in the grand lab, we do a lot of empirical work. We, we, we get our hands dirty. And so um, one of the main projects that I've been working on is this project um, that Andrea has been running, my advisor, um, for a long time studying the immune phenotypes of rewilded laboratory mice. So these are laboratory mice that you um, that sort of are raised in these indoor settings, but then after four to six weeks, we put them into outdoor enclosures and we basically allow them to sort of run around in these outdoor enclosures. Um, and that's a very different environment outdoors from what they experience indoors. There's a lot richer sort of environment in terms of microbes, in terms of the food that they can eat. They experience natural weather patterns. Um, we do try to keep predators away from them and we're, we think we're pretty successful with that, but still, you know, it's a very different setting from what a lab mouse experiences indoors. And so we can sort of get a sense of what does that outdoor environment and that sort of that richness, that chaos contribute to the immune system, right? So you guys may be familiar with this idea of the old friends hypothesis that, you know, the exposures that we have early in life to, you know, dirt or whatever um, really matter for what our immune system looks like. And that's why there's sort of one thought as to why there's this increasing presence of sort of chronic sort of gastrointestinal diseases in, in sort of developed countries. Um, and so it turns out that this exposure to the outdoor setting or sort of taking these lab mice and putting them outdoors really dramatically changes their immune systems. Um, and so there's these big differences, um, which are really cool and sort of understanding, okay, what exactly contributes to those differences and what do those mean for the outcome of infections? What does those mean for sort of, you know, the parasites that we're interested in as well as the hosts? You know, trying to get a sense of that is, I think, really useful. Um, and so I've been working on a couple different aspects of that project, um, in including some of these things about sort of like taking different mouse strains and sort of infecting them and seeing how the rewilding affects the parasite response differently. Um, and my sort of biggest project has been using some data we have from RFID tags that each mouse gets to track the activity of the mice in these enclosures and to see, okay, who are they interacting with or who do they tend to like sort of appear at a location with? And does that at all sort of relate to what their immune systems look like? And it turns out basically that individuals that uh, more frequently sort of interact, roughly speaking, um, have more similar immune systems um, because they're probably encountering the same microbes. We're not totally sure exactly why, but that's, that's our best hypothesis. And so this is 
this this rewilding system is really wonderful because it both enables us to really better understand the immune system in the natural setting in which it would have evolved as well as to get a sense of like what factors shape what the immune system looks like so we get this nice granular thing to be able to say like oh okay all right all this exposure to stuff really matters for their immune system and by the way some of the variation that you then observe among these mice is going to be determined by who they are like interacting with and so that's been one of the main parts and there is one other part which we're kind of still working on but we're getting there where um so we don't just study mice in the gram lab that's our kind of one of our main things but people in the lab have done things like uh, insect immune systems and have done things like um sort of antibody uh dynamics in humans um and uh what what I am also working on is the immune systems of northern elephant seals, um, which are just huge seals. Um, and there's a lot of really cool stuff that we can learn from that, um, which uh, I don't want to bore you all with the details, but I am happy to talk about. So speaking of rewilded mice, something very exciting is that Graham Lab was actually interviewed by The New Yorker. In the article, it was mentioned that mice share a large majority of their genes with humans and even suffer many of the same illnesses. Would you be able to briefly elaborate on the similarities in immune function between humans and mice, as well as the similarities and differences between lab mice and rewilded mice? Sure. Yeah, so there there are a lot of differences in, in sort of, but there are also a lot of sort of similarities and precisely what these are is kind of complicated. I don't know, it's, it's definitely debated and not something I'm super familiar with, but I have some, some degree of familiarity. So the basic structure of our immune systems are, are pretty similar. Um, so we, we have a lot of the same sort of types of immune cells, which are serving broadly similar functions um, and sort of uh, in analogous ways. So like, and there's the, and like certain specific molecules, right? A lot of specific molecules do broadly speaking the same thing. So for example, if you get infected by, you know, a virus of some sort, like our immune systems are gonna produce a lot of the signaling molecule called interferon gamma. A mouse is also gonna produce a lot of the signaling molecule called interferon gamma. And it's going to coordinate the immune response in broadly similar ways. And so the dynamics of an immune response and a lot of the sort of cell types that get used are going to be very similar. So in terms of the broad outlines, the immune responses between mice and humans are very sort of, are, are sort of work well as sort of, you can, you can, you can sort of draw a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good information from a mouse to apply to a human, but not all the information. Um, and there's a number of reasons for this. Um, so some is just to do with the fact there are still some basic evolved differences. I don't exactly remember the divergence time between rodents and primates, but it's something maybe around 50 million years ago. So that's a lot of evolutionary time in which the molecules might change, the functions might change, the selection might work in particular ways or drift. Um, so you can still get a lot of differences. Um, and we do see plenty of differences, but then um, some of those differences are also going to be because we are very different organisms in terms of what we do, right? We are huge compared to a mouse. Um, a mouse might weigh, I don't know, a healthy mouse might weigh 20 grams, something along those lines, right? Which is going to be a couple orders of magnitude less than a human weighs. Um, so that's going to be a big difference. The lifespan is very different. The sort of reproductive dynamics are very different. The sort of basic aspects of the ecology are quite different. I mean, so those are going to be sort of affecting what the, how the immune system operates and the strength of a response maybe that it puts out in different circumstances. And then an additional complication is actually in that lab rewilded distinction that, that you that you highlighted. Um, because um, we're really, we're not compare we're generally not comparing humans who live in sort of relatively dirty environments, right? Like we sort of, you know, we experience a lot of stuff. Um, a lab mouse lives in sort of a stainless steel sort of 
or, or like plastic uh, kind of environment where like they don't experience anything because we really don't want them to experience anything. That's the theory. We want them to be like pure so that they can like sort of be easily replicable and we can sort of determine exactly what's going on. Um, and so that's not only are you comparing two different organisms, but you're also comparing them in two different environments. And so figuring out which one of those actually matters for the differences that we see between mice and humans is really challenging. And that's one of the reasons why rewilding, like what we do in the Gram Lab, and there are some other groups that do this as well, is so useful because rewilding enables us to sort of say, okay, we're not, you know, we can sort of observe what the environment does to the immune phenotype, right? We can get a sense of that by taking mice that are basically genetically identical and sort of comparing what they look like in the lab versus what they look like rewilded. And when they're rewilded, they look quite different. So their immune systems are a lot more experienced. They have a lot more immune memory. Um, they also seem to produce a lot more antibodies. Um, there are still some things that seem to be somewhat similar in terms of some aspects of the production of sort of immune signaling molecules are maybe similar, but there's, there's a lot of things that just through the aggregate experience change. And what that means actually is that you get these very different sort of presentations of disease burdens. So a classic example is that it's extremely hard to infect a lab mouse with some sort of like gut worm. But gut worms are, are quite prevalent in humans, and this is something that we really would like to know more about. It's it just, you just have to give them like a truly ludicrous number of larvae in order to like establish an infection. And it's usually just not very large in lab mice. When you give them to rewilded mice, they get a whole lot, they get them a lot more easily. And that's a really cool result that we've observed just in the summer of 2021, that sort of this difference because of the sort of rewilding and actually what that seems to be doing to the immune system, we think it's basically interfering them from producing an effective anti-worm response. And so that sort of difference, right? not only does it make, does it sort of matter, is it showing what the environment does, but also the rewilded ones, you could say, because worms are relatively common in humans, right? They're becoming a better model, these rewilded mice for human helminth infections, for human gut worm infections, compared to the lab mice as a model. And so this might be a really promising way forward to understand better, you know, what infection sort of looks like um, because we can see in this one instance that like, hey, actually the infection um, is going to, you know, we can better model the infection if we take a rewilded mouse. And so, you know, who's to say if that's something that's really durable, it's kind of hard to do these experiments, but, but it would be super exciting to be able to really figure out some sort of way to make rewilding more of a default for the purposes of comparison with humans. That sounds really exciting and really interesting how like rewilded mice are a lot more related in a way to humans mm -hmm. like in the sense of like immune function and everything but i guess before we get to our last question if there's anything that we haven't mentioned yet is there anything you want to plug into the podcast or anything that you also want to add about your research um i mean not in particular so i think that you know there's a lot of you know it is sort of an exciting topic to be working on right now in terms of sort of understanding sort of trying to to get a better sense of how the immune system operates and one thing that i think is really interesting in general about the immune system and that my advisor sort of spent a lot of time thinking about and sort of pioneering, right, is understanding the extent to which the immune system is obviously incredibly sort of helpful in, in preventing sort of parasite infections, but also um, that can sort of have its own costs to the self, right? So mounting an immune response is really sort of energetically expensive. You probably feel really dragged out if you're sick, right? And that's one of the reasons why, because your immune system is like, actually, uh, we would like all the resources now, please. Um, so that's sort of one thing that, that is sort of interesting, right, is that the immune system is 
is really sort of draining to use. Um, and also, an overly aggressive immune system can damage the self, um, right? Um, this is something that is sort of maybe not and previously not been so well appreciated. And sometimes I still sort of see like when I sort of see stuff in sort of popular press, it's like, mm, I, I don't I don't know about that. Um, you know, like this idea that like you can't really have like an, uh, an immune system which like operates perfectly and super powerfully and super efficiently against parasites uh, without it also damaging the self. Um, in some way. Um, and so um, obviously we know about sort of classic examples of autoimmune diseases are things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, there's lots of diseases of this nature. Um, and so sort of that kind of balancing act um, is really interesting and in sort of understanding how the environment and the genotype can sort of shift the positions of like what is the optimal balance is I think something really exciting to think about. And so that's something that, you know, I think is also relevant here, right? Understanding like okay, the immune system is better, it becomes better at this or is operates better in this way when you're outdoors. Like maybe it's better at dealing with, I don't know, bacterial infections, but it becomes worse at dealing with worm infections because they get a lot more worms. And so understanding like those trade-offs is I think a really foundational thing actually to the study of the immune system. Um, and it's something that we're sort of constantly thinking about like, okay, what got better and what got worse? What got better, what got worse? As a final question, what advice would you give to students listening right now that you would give to your younger self? Well, honestly, actually, the piece of advice that I give to people who want to do grad school um, most often is to uh, go work with someone who is a really good advisor. Um, you're going to spend, you know, five plus years um, working in one place. Um, I think it is relatively rare that people have like a truly strong sense, like like truly like perfectly strong sense of like, I want to work on this topic precisely and only this topic. Um, and if you sort of have that approach, right, there's, there's a relatively limited number of people who can really help you do that. So you maybe you got one or two people who can help you do that. Um, or you may just have to construct it yourself. Um, but if you sort of go someplace where you find someone who you can work with for an extended period of time, right, and who is going to be supportive and who is going to help you with whatever it is that you're that you're doing, um, you're going to have a happy grad school experience or, have, you know, for the given value of grad school, right? Like, you know, it's going to go well. And so I think I often sort of emphasize to people, like, you should go someplace where you are enthusiastic about working with the person who is going to be your advisor and working with the people who are going to be your collaborators. And so that's actually a thing that I sort of often tell people about, like why I really like Princeton EEB is that it's a wonderful department. My advisor, Andrea, is a wonderful person I'm really fortunate to work with. And it's a, it does have a, a, a strong community aspect to it. And so like, yeah, there are going to be days where I'm like, mm, nothing seems to be working. You know, I can't come up with a good idea, whatever. Um, and there's people around who can help me sort through that. And there's people around who can, you know, help me make the next day a better day, right? Um, and having those sorts of things is, I think, actually really important. Um, and you're going to then, through the process of sort of working with people who, who are fun to work with and sort of interacting with people who are sort of intellectually sort of exciting for you, you're going to figure out what you, what you, you know, what you're happy doing. Um, but you're, even if you think like, ooh, this is the perfect topic for me, if you're unhappy doing it, it's not, it's not really going to work out terribly well for you. So that's sort of, I know that's not really about like the, the science per se, but I do think that's something that's incredibly important is being in like the right environment for doing whatever scientific research you're going to be doing. I think regardless, it's great advice to hear, even if somebody doesn't necessarily choose grad school, it's like the idea of, you know, having that open mind, looking for an advisor that's very supportive and in, in a collaborative environment. I think all of those are really important in all fields of STEM. I hope so. You know, yeah. I don't really know, you know, like I've not done things other than scientific research, but like I imagine it's true. So 
yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep dispensing it as advice, and then maybe people will tell me actually it doesn't matter. But <laughs> for now, for now it seems okay. For now it does, yes. So that's what matters. But Alec, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great learning about your research, and best of luck with your dissertation and becoming Dr. Downey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great to be here. Hell yeah. This episode of Be Cubed was hosted by Ketavon Shavdia and me, sound engineered by me, and produced under the 147th Managing Board of a Prince. To learn more about the Graham Lab, visit the links in the description below. From the Prince, my name is Senna Eldabash. Have a great rest of your day.